praying while she was singing. I felt like she should sing that song tonight. Remember when Leslie's a, Leslie was a little girl, a little little girl? I was pastoring my second church in Mount Vernon, south of Mount Vernon, Kentucky. I was an arrogant young punk preacher, had no heart. That's what's wrong with fundamentalism. I went down to the church one morning and unlocked and locked the door back behind me and went up to sit and pray. And Leslie came down as a little girl, a little bitty girl, baby. She wanted to be with Daddy. She came and knocked on the door and she said, Daddy, let me in, and it bothered me. I said, uh, I just sat there. I didn't answer the door. I didn't want her to bother me. And finally, after a while, I stormed back to the back of the church and opened that door. My little baby had fallen on the corner of the steps and it punched a hole in her head right there. And she was wanting her daddy to help her. But I was bothered by that. When I saw that hole in her head, I, I repented of my wicked thoughts and heart. And as Lori sung the song, I thought, uh, prayed. I said, Lord Jesus, it's raining out here. Let me to thy bosom fly. Christian life is a hill climb. It's not to be saved. It's to answer the call that is within you, that longing to be near him who longed to be near me. That's what it is. You ask me why we throw away the trash, not because I have to. It's because I have to. You understand? It's not because it's a demand of God. It's because it's a demand of my heart that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, even made, be, made conformable, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I may attain unto the resurrection from the dead. I want you to be tender about God's work in your life. We're so arrogant and cocky, so shallow and cheap. Tonight we'll take our Bibles to Exodus chapter number 27. We must have, we must have tender services. Telling Miss Joan today, I have to keep things around me all the time that keep me weeping. For I'm a smart aleck, hard-hearted. I've owned some businesses and I've had people lie to me that were supposed to be Christians. I've had, I've pastored churches and had people lie to me that were supposed to be right. I've had them try to run me off and destroy me by their tongue. You have too. It makes you hard. And I just must keep tender. You too. We'll read verses 1 through 8 and then verses 16, 13 through 16. Chapter number 27, the book of Exodus. 
I didn't get to finish the message last night, but maybe tonight I'll get to put some of the information in this message. And thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. And an altar shall be, the altar shall be four square, and the height thereof shall be three cubits, and thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His horn shall be of the same, and thou shalt overlay it with brass, and thou shalt make his pans to receive his ashes, and his shovels, and his basins, and his flesh pots, and his uh, fire pans, all the vessels thereof thou shalt make of brass. And thou shalt make for it a gate of uh, a grate of network of brass, and upon the net shalt thou make four brazen rings in the four corners thereof, and thou shalt put it under the compass of the altar beneath, that means drop it down in the middle below the top, that the net may be even to the midst of the altar, down to the middle of the altar, in other words, a, a cubit and a half from the bottom. Thou shalt make staves for the altar, staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with brass, and the staves shall be put into the rings, and the staves shall be upon the two sides of the altar to bury it. Hollow with boards shalt thou make it as it was shewed thee or showed thee in the mount, so shall they make it. Then verse number 13, And the breadth of the court on the east side eastward shall be 50 cubits. Now this is on the east end, and it has to do with the gate. The hangings of one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits. Their pillars three, and their sockets three. And on the other side shall be hangings, Fifteen cubits, their pillars three, and their sockets three. And for the gate of the court shall be an hanging of twenty cubits of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen, wrought with needlework, and their pillars shall be four, and their sockets four. Now tonight we will talk, I'll remind you, we talked the first night the purpose of the tabernacle. The second, uh, well, the second message was the perimeter of the tabernacle, and tonight we will talk about the permission of the tabernacle. Now you remember that the fence in, the, in that outer court, that perimeter around the tabernacle, I gave you these things about that fence. In, in, chap, in the message number one, I said the purpose of that outside, or part of the purpose of this tabernacle, was a desire to be with God, I mean God to be with us, a demand. The second part of that third point was that it was a demand. It made a demand upon us that God is holy and we cannot come into his uh, presence uh, unless we find a way that we can be acceptable with the Lord. It is a demand that says he is holy. And then uh, the third uh, thing that we talked about under that point was it, it was a uh, uh, that uh, tabernacle set a distance between sinful man and a holy God. And then the third thing, a direction. In other words, it said you can't come in here, you can't come in here, you can't come in here, and it kept that up until a man found his way to a place that said you can come in here. By the way, while I'm thinking about it, how many of you have a picture, have that drawing of the tabernacle, or, an, or, or let me put it the other way, how many of you want a drawing of the tabernacle. We have some drawings back here of that tabernacle. All right, hold your hand, get a copy. And then we have some drawings of the furniture. And uh, so somebody give that out if you'll raise your hand and somebody will come to you and they'll give you what you want, okay? 
the furniture that goes in the tabernacle and the drawing of the whole layout. Go ahead and get that, and I'll just be talking here a little bit. The second message I preached, I talked about the curtain that went around. I said that curtain was the dress for the saints. It is the, the robe that, that we put on. It is the righteousness of the saints, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. That outer curtain is a division. It divides the house of God from the wicked world. That outer curtain is a demand. It's a demand that says we must be holy if we're to approach God. And again, I said it is a direction. It is a pointing a finger that says this is not the way and it pushes us around till we come to the way. The directing of the white linen fence brings a seeking sinner to the only place where he is not rejected. When you get to all the papers, when we get the papers, well, I'll go ahead with the message. The white linen veil or the white linen curtain is a, is a directing sign that brings a seeking sinner to the only place that he can be acceptable to God. All right, most of you have them. Now I want you to look up here at me. We'll consider, I suppose this is east. Is that right, preacher? Which is east, somebody? This is east. Behind me is east, all right? We will suppose then that this wall is that fence. If a sinner were outside and the Christians are doing their job, holding up Christ, standing in their place, letting grace work fully in their lives, the sinner who is on the outside, who, and you know I want to say this, you won't, you, you won't seek God. You know that, don't you? God seeks you. And when God finds you as a sinner on the outside, he pricks your heart with Holy Spirit conviction. Now, no man comes to the Father except the Father draw him. There's nobody ever got saved himself without the help of God. God will promote your salvation. And what God does is he reaches out some way and he deals with that person on the outside to make him have a conviction about this white linen veil that he does not measure up to God that he is not acceptable to God and that he is not in right relationship to God and where God can bless him. And so this drive within him to seek God is really God helping him seek himself. You see that? You see that? You understand that? It is God working in that sinner or on that sinner to seek God. Therefore, that sinner begins to look for a way to get to God. And uh, you, that sinner can never say, I found God. Though uh, I, I do understand you could say that as long as you remember that it's God that instituted the search. Amen? God is not willing that any should perish and that all should come to repentance. And the point is, is that God deals with every sinner. Every sinner. The sinner is convicted. And, and you know, really, we need, to, we need to have the kind of churches where they'll want to be in. Instead of pulling these va this veil down and trashing up the gospel, we need to keep it up. And uh, you know, I I'll say this, hard preaching, Brother Tully, uh, it's, uh, you know, we don't have it. 
If you don't have hard preaching, you don't have no salvation. You hear me? You've got to raise that curtain up. The way to raise that curtain up is to show what God demands of that sinner out there. Now, that sinner out there, buddy, is not to lie and cheat and steal. He's not to use God's name in vain. He's not to do things that God is not pleased with. Buddy, and you better preach it to him. Say, don't preach a law to him. What in the world do you mean don't preach a law to him? Paul said, I would not have known sin except the law said. And what he means is somebody preached that law to me to show me that I'd failed. Thus that law became a schoolmaster to bring me to my only hope, Christ. Now don't you ever tell me, don't you ever, don't ever, listen, you'll sin against God when you start putting water on hard, rough, sin-killing preaching. And you say, well, Brother Wayne, don't frown when you preach. Hey, buddy, how can you fight something you hate and not frown? I'm telling you, I've watched, watched homes broke up. I've seen homes. I, I, listen, I, I'll just give you this illustration. Little, little home. Here's a little home in my church in Kentucky. Just a, a precious young couple. They probably wasn't even 20 years old. I mean, he joined the uh, Army, came to Fort Knox. He, he lived in Tennessee and They'd gotten married, and he moved up there, and she came up too, and, and uh, Debbie and Buddy, and uh, they, came, they came to Fort Knox, and they had a little girl, sweetest little child, and, and they give us a picture of her, and I tell you, we, put the, we still got the picture. I mean, all that just a healthy little family, and they loved my preaching. They wanted a preacher just skin everything he could find and preach and holler and storm and run all over the place and spit on the first six rows and everything else. You know, they liked it. Old-fashioned hillbilly preaching. They was hillbilly. That's what they were. And they come and liked it. But I remember when they wanted to buy their little, their little girl a little extra Christmas. Just a little extra Christmas. So Debbie went and got a job out on the base, you know, a, a frying hamburger. She wasn't out selling the hamburgers where they could be flirted, flirting with her. She was behind there cooking hamburgers where those GIs couldn't flirt with her. Well, and much. But you know what that... Christmas cost them. It cost them their home. Yeah, I watched it. You know where her place was, preacher? Not behind a grill and a hamburger joint. It was at home. You say, Brother Wayne, don't preach to me like that. I work, I'm a lady and I work. I don't care whether you're a lady work or not. I'll tell you where a woman's place is in the home. If you'll stay at home, you won't find yourself in a coffee shop with a guy you work with. All that. See, it's got to be preached. You just got to get men in a junkyard dog about sin. And I mean, don't be afraid of any of it. And don't be bought off by dollar bills. Junk. I tell you, if she sinks, let her sink, buddy. But preach. It's got to be done. And don't ever, and don't ever pressure the preacher to let up on anything. And when it burns your high, just back away and quit hollering and let him go. You say, man, it's a killing me, but I, I'm not going to aid him. It's hurting me worse than it's helping me, I believe, but let it go. Just let him preach. Don't, don't stop him. You've got to have it. That's that demand put on that sinner. If that, if that sinner don't know God's, everybody's saved today. Go out there and ask them, yeah, I'm saved. No, they're not saved. Why do they live like that? Buddy, I can't live like that. How come I can't live like that? God a respecter of persons? You mean God will save them and let them live like two devils and save me and I can't even live, I can't even, the best I know how, I'm not even, I can't do good enough. Seem like I can't keep up. 
You mean God's respect? No, no, they're not saved. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. You've got to have preaching. You've got to say the demand. Say the demand to them. So they get frustrated and say, who can do this? John Rice was out west preaching, and he said a woman came to him crying, just weeping, said, I've been reading Leviticus, and I can't do it. And he said, praise God, the Bible's true. She said, what do you mean? He said, the Bible's supposed to get you so frustrated with your life, you'll come to Christ and let him do it for you. I heard him tell that. Amen. What that fence does is drive that sinner. He starts looking. He said, I want, I'm not, I've got turmoil. I'm not happy. My heart is ripped and I need something. And he tries to find it in Song of Solomon. I, I preach a sermon some, sometime called Satisfied Only with the Best. If I didn't tell this, he'd preach it. <laughs> Did you know your soul won't hush until it has God? Go get you some rock music. Say, I'll quiet it. No, I'll tell you, just go ahead and listen to it. And when you get done and you turn the rock set off, that soul will say, you have not got it yet, buddy. Go get you a bottle of liquor and try to drink it down. But when you sober up, that soul will say, you haven't got it yet. But you go get saved and you'll come away saying, I have received what I sought for all these years. You see, that fence is to bring you around and finally it does bring you to that one place and here that sinner who has felt that emptiness in his heart finds permission to enter by specific instructions. This is not a silent hole in the wall. This is not a silent entrance. This is not an undesignated uh, entrance. In other words, there are things that must take place or you don't go in. I'm not a works man. I do not believe in works for salvation. I believe it's all been done in Christ. But it's like the man that stole the copper down in, uh, down in Pineville, Kentucky out of the car. He stole all that copper and had it in his coat. And uh, the junkyard man saw him. He shot up in the air and the fellow took running and, and eventually he tried to swim the Cumberland River with all that copper in his coat. And when he went down in that water, he got up enough and he run his hand up and there was a maple limb sticking over in that water and he found that maple limb and his hand would just bob up and down like that out of that water. But he couldn't, he was gripping on to it and panicked and frantic. And my friend, the preacher came, was, uh, they were all standing there, the state policeman, the owner and some others. And my preacher friend came and looked down, saw the hand. And he said, there he is, somebody get him. And somebody said, let him drown, he's just a thief. And old brother Sturgill dove off in that freezing cold river and plowed up on that limb. When that man came out of the water, he knocked him out and brought him in, and he lived. That man's hand out of the water didn't save him. But I tell you what it did. It made it, made it a way that the Savior could save him. And the preacher did save him. Amen? So there are no, this is not an open hole in the wall. It said that just says wander in, drunk or whatever, just just any way to wander in. Oh, no, there's specific things about this place. Let's, me let's meditate upon this permission, this entrance way. Number one, we'll talk about the variety, and we'll talk about it visualized, and then we'll talk about it being verbalized, and then we'll talk about it being verified if God gives us time in two minutes. I, don't, I, I know we, we just don't have time for this. 
the variety. Now, that's not to say that there are several ways to enter in, but it is to say that there are several objects uh, involved in entering in and getting in the family of God. One of them is, the first is a gate. It was the gate referred to in 2716, and he said, for the gate of the court, and so forth. And then the other object that's to be dealt with is the altar. You have the gate and the altar, and these two things are involved in the sinner getting inside the family of God. The gate and then the altar, and that's referred to in 27.1. You can read that. And these two objects open the way for a sinner to be saved. The next thing I want to talk about after variety is visualized. In other words, what do you see when you see these objects? Number one, we talk about the gate in 27.16 as to its colors. In 27.16, it's blue and purple and scarlet and white. Its columns, it says in 27.16, it had four pillars, four pillars just like all the other pillars we've talked about already. Its cubits, it is 20 cubits wide and five cubits tall. Here you have a gate that's not white. Now, it's, it is partly white, but it is a different thing from all the rest. And as you come around that gate, that wall of, of rejection and demand and direction and all that, you find your way to this gate that's 20 cubits wide and five cubits tall, held up by four pillars that are just like all the other pillars in that whole compound. And that, uh, and that gate is different colored. It is white linen and variegated upon it, I suspect variegated upon it, are the colors blue, purple, and scarlet plus the white that's already there. So that's what you see. When you pull back that curtain and visualize or look into the altar, which is verses 1 and 2 of the 27th chapter, the dimensions of that altar are five cubits one way, five cubits the other, and three cubits high. Do you see that? Uh, five cubits long, five cubits broad, and the four square and the height thereof shall be three cubits. What's the design of the altar? It is four square in verse 1. It is made of shittim wood overlaid with brass, and it has four horns upon each of it, one on each of its corners. What's the denomination? What is the naming of this device, which is just inside the gate? One is called in verse number one, look at it, thou shalt make an altar. The word an is an indefinite uh, article. I'm not an English professor. I'm not planning to teach English, but I do think you ought to see some things that are in common life that uh, have, great, have a great deal of uh, uh, weight to them. Uh, in other words, the word a or an is, an, is, an, is, a, is a little thing that designates an, un, an unspecific thing. If I say, let us, play, let us play a piano at the wedding of my daughters, let us play an organ, it wouldn't matter if we brought this one down there, brought one up from Atlanta, Georgia, or played our own, it wouldn't matter, would it? But I, if I were to say, let us play the organ at my daughter's wedding, then you would know that there is a specific organ. You look in verse number one. He said, thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood. And then in the middle of verse number one, he said, make the altar 
he said shall be four square. In other words, it's a designated altar. And then if you would look with me in chapter 30 and verse number 28, 30 and verse number 28, here is another designation or denomination for a name for that altar. Verse thir chapter 30, verse 28, and the altar of burnt offering with all his vessels and the labor and his foot. The burnt offering, the altar of burnt offering. Now there's a lot of times that's designated. Brother Tully, I don't know if you've ever taught the book of Leviticus to your Sunday school, but it is a real study. If you will get, I believe it's Alfred Smith's book on Leviticus. It is so interesting. The first five chapters of Leviticus deal with the offerings. Uh, the offerings, uh, almost everything in this book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus, uh, when it comes to describing the articles of God are listed in reverse from the way you and I have to view them. In other words, God started describing the tabernacle from the Holy of Holies to the outside. But you and I have to start on the outside to get to the Holy of Holies. So we have to sort of study it backward. That is that way with those five offerings. I, if my memory serves me right, chapter number one I know definitely is the burnt offering. Chapter number two is the meal or meat offering. And it's an unbloody sacrifice offering. Chapter number three is a peace offering. And chapter number four is the trespass, is the... Uh, uh, atonement, or uh, I believe it's atonement, uh, what is it, S uh, sin offering. It is the sin offering, and chapter number five is the trespass offering. Oh, those five. Now watch this. I don't tell you, listen, God wrote that book just like it ought to be written. In chapter number five, that's where I start. Did you know, Brother Tully, that is the one offering that's not a sweet savor offering? That's the one offering that's not a sweet savor offering. All the rest of them are sweet savors to God. That one offering is the primary offering. It is the beginning of the walk with God. It is the way you get saved. You know how you got saved? I bet I know how you got saved. You got saved over some sin you were committing. It's, yeah, you did something. Your soul got vexed by that. The Spirit of God used that to drive and dig at you. I don't know what it was, but when I was seven years old, I remember what it was in me. When I was ten years old, I remember once again what it was in me that brought that conviction from God. It was a sin. It was not what I was, sir. It was what, it was what I was doing. Sins, it's trespasses, it is things in chapter number five. And uh, when you got saved, you got saved over something you were doing wrong. You were doing something wrong, and God convicted you and turned you toward that entrance, and you got saved. But you know, after you got saved, it wasn't long you found out it really wasn't what you were doing that was hurting you. It's what you were. It's not the fruit that hurts me. It's the root that's hurting me. It is not what I do. It's what I am that's given me all the trouble. If I can take care of the root... I can take care of the fruit. And so then I, I go to Christ in that. I don't mean I'm getting, I got saved at the trespass offering. But the sin offering is not things you do. It's what you are you need to be saved from. And God, by his marvelous grace, when he started that trespass of forgiveness, he'll move as you move and he'll clean up your root business. 
Amen. And then one day, oh, the glory will settle in on you. And you realize that there is peace with God. That's chapter number three, peace with God. And it's a sweet savor offering. When God smells you bound your knee to Christ and getting right with him over not what you do but what you are, God is happy with that. He loves that savor. And when you come to him and you bow on your knee and you're, and, and you're exercised about the fact that there's peace with God with you, God's exercised with that. He loves it. When you come and bring that meat offering, that meal offering, that is saying that the life of Christ is what I want to live. His human life, the way he lived as a human, I want to live that way. And I claim him as my life, Christ, who is our life. And it smells sweet to the Father. But I tell you, old number five, which is chapter number one, is the top of the list. For it's the one offering that's burnt holy. When you come to that place in your Christian life, in that first chapter is your height of offering to God. When you come to God and uh, everything is Christ. It's all Christ. It's Christ. It's no one else and no thing else. It's all Christ. You don't just take his human life. You don't just take his divine life. You don't just talk about him taking care of your sin or your trespasses. He is everything. He's everything. And God, there's five things offered in that chapter. There's a bullock, an oxen. That's a burden bearer. And Christ is a burden bearer. Amen.